Hi, you're with Julian on the Brown Notes and possibly last show of the year unless I can find it in the goodness of my heart to return for a really lacklustre track list next year. Uh, last week I did my albums of the year and the next one will be the tracks of the year and this one is my films of 2021 and I have been moaning my backside off. Even did a, a piece which I didn't do on the radio, I did it on YouTube only about how 2021 was the worst year for art this century i do my lists every year and they're normally really exciting and it's a you know it's a it's a nice way to look back over the year who wants to look back over the last two years maybe that's part of it but the album list i was you know normally i i struggle to cull lots of stuff and this time i was struggling to fill it and even what the worst well i haven't done tracks yet because i can't think of that many so i don't know what that's going to be like but the films are even worse than the albums even though i've seen a raft of films over the last month and included some of those it's still a really lackluster list and i thought the most telling point of the an anemic 2021 art scene is i normally enjoy in the middle of this list doing my worst films of the year i probably enjoy that from personality reasons more than doing the best films even that list is the dullest ever so um without further ado i'll play some one track and uh the rest of the music after this one is from the films in the list so um at least we've got some good music anyways that's an interesting album to start the show on because um, that album came out just before Christmas last year, like days before Christmas, the um, Avalanches, We Will Always Love You, but I included it in my roundup of albums of the year this year, where no one else did. And this is the year I crossed the Rubicon on this issue. Every year, half my favourite films come out in, you know, I see them in January and February. They're all released for the Oscars. And they're all in the top 10 lists of the year before for most critics because critics go to film festivals. And I thought, no, enough's enough. Um, I was looking at the release dates of a lot of the films that are in the top 10 list this year and, and, and were last year. And it's not like saying they came out in November and you just didn't see them until January. A lot of them came out at festivals and then were released internationally in February. So there's a, a couple of films in the list that didn't even come... The public wouldn't have even seen them until February. You think about albums. If albums were only listened to by music critics, how stupid their end-of-year list would be. Yet the critics for films fill their lists of films of the year with films that no one's actually seen yet. And I don't understand why that's okay. So I've included a couple of... Very old films, but I looked at the international release dates and both in Australia and even in America in some cases, they didn't come out until February. So what's the point in them being at the San Francisco Film Festival to 200 people in November last year? It just doesn't work. So kicking off my list is one of two films by that are very underrated Matt Damon films. And I've not giving him the credit he deserves as an actor because I think both the films that he's in this year he gives really good performances in I've I've criticized him in the past for being 
a hugely likable character that probably gets a lot of work because he's the easiest guy and I have to work with. Uh, but I have looked back over his... I think I saw a couple of his older films, like uh, The Departed. I think actually his was the best performance and character in that movie. It was a kind of heartbreaking role. It was a more messed up role than Leo's was. Um, and I, I've seen a couple of films where I haven't really given him the credit he deserves. So Stillwater is my 15th best film of the year. It may not have got there normally. Uh, directed by Tom Carthy. Very controversial when it came out, rightly so. It does the Amanda Knox story of a foreign exchange student from America being uh, accused of murdering. Um, in this case, they change a lot of the details, but it was enough that Amanda Knox said, thanks a bunch for dragging me through the mire and making me out to be guilty. And I totally agree with her. Um, anyone that thinks Amanda Knox is guilty of, of stabbing someone to death because there were salacious stories about her smoking pot and being a bit sexy is not someone I've got a lot of respect for. But this film does change a lot of the details. For instance, the, um, the victim here is not uh, another foreign exchange student. It's a local. But the film really starts off um, quite beautifully with Matt Damon in this incredibly poor part of America struggling to get any kind of work and suddenly it's in the south of France and you're one in a cheap hotel and you're wondering what on earth is going on here and you find out that he goes every year to visit his daughter who's been convicted of murdering her flatmate who's um, I think a Moroccan French girl I can't quite remember there <coughs> so we get this whole idea of him being this savior that's going to rescue her and she goes she when he visits her in prison um, she's she comes up with the story that she's actually spoken to another prisoner that has told her that this guy is has admitted to doing what she's in jail for. Um, and it, it pans out from there in ways that are very interesting, actually, um, that I won't go fully into. But basically, he becomes this um, saviour that's going to clear her name. Doesn't really pan out the way that he expected. And he ends up spending a lot of time in um, France, living in the house of Abigail Breslin and Camille Cotton. And Camille Cotton is one of the most charming young children I've ever seen in a film. And what I loved about this film is the way that Matt Damon, like, it, it, it's, it's got that murder mystery angle, but really most of the film is about this very broken man building a credible relationship at first with this young girl, and then the mother, played by Abigail Breslin, and them developing a romantic interest in each other that is nothing like how you'd normally get it in films. It pans over nearly the entire length of the film in, in ways where the pl platonic nature of what's happening is the dominant force in the film, the way these three entities all grow together and form this bond. And in the background, there's this terrible spectre. And the, revel the revelations and resolutions at the end are black. And I love that because it left you with a really bitter feeling in your mouth. And I thought Matt Damon was superb. And Camille Cotton, I hope she was a youngie. I think she is. And Abigail Breslin and uh, Deanna Dunnigan as well as a daughter who's an unlikable character. And I thought that was another strong part to the film was um she isn't um she's not the most like i can 
understand Amanda Knox watching this and thinking, thanks for throwing me under a bus because she's portrayed as a very difficult, abrasive person. Uh, and the revelations as they come are... I, I mean, I do understand some criticisms of this film about not showing the um, the local colour of Marseille, where the film is set, because that's one of the most ethnically diverse and ethnically complex parts of Spa uh, France, noted for ghettos and violence and crime. Uh, and it, it doesn't always show that side of things that well. It focuses on this very white, central group of people. But overall, I thought it was a really interesting uh, environment. I thought Matt Damon gave one of the best performances I've seen him give. And, and I thought the screenplay was good as well. Uh, Tom McCarthy, did he write it? Yeah, he was one of the writers. So, um, yeah, that was my 15th. I'll just roll through until I get to one where I've got music. Nobody. Uh, that was allegedly analogous to... Um, the John Wick franchise, but this time starring the absolutely wonderful Bob Odenkirk, uh, who is from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, as the titular Saul. One of the great moments in TV was um, in, in Breaking Bad, he's this very dodgy lawyer called Sal Goodman. And um, early on in the subsequent Better Call Saul se uh, series, you find out why he's called that. And, uh, and he just says at one point, Saul Goodman. And you realise that's where he got his name from. So uh, this was um, a very low-key um, but pretty high-octane Isla Nashula, um, written, oh, directed and written by Derek Koistad. Um, a film about a sleeper agent who's, you know, he used to be a really bad man that killed loads of people and did terrible things, but he's been pretending to be um, a, a really wet family man whose family can't stand him because he's so wet and he's, you know, even his wife won't make love to him anymore. And then there's a home invasion where you get this inkling that he could kill everyone in the room, but he just lets them flee because he knows that they're just these weak robbers that have no idea how far over their head they're getting. And he takes the higher ground, but his family really turn on him. So he ends up going after the f famous bunny from the trailer. They steal his daughter's bunny and he goes off after it. And on the way, he encounters some very bad men and that triggers him into becoming this ultra-violence character. And obviously they are Russian mafia and uh, it goes, like the first John Wick film, it basically goes up from the, the, the henchman to the next level up to the next level up to the next level up. And it has also got a wonderful turn from, which I really, I, I love Connie Nelson. Every time I see her in a film, I look her up because I don't know who she is. But um, yeah, she's uh, oh, the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan's in it. But Christopher Lloyd from Back to the Future, wielding a shotgun against baddies is just wonderful. So Nobody at 14 was a magnificent effort. And at 13, one of a few documentaries in the list, Todd Haynes, The Velvet Underground Documentary, universally praised, probably will be in the um, Oscars roundup, an artistic masterpiece uh, telling the chronological story of The Velvet Underground. My, my concerns were that it wasn't a definitive documentary because it didn't portray the uh, context of the band on a wide level. It was a very insular story that existed only around the characters 
And not so much about the arguably the most influential and first alternative rock band in history that launched multiple universes of music that are still portrayed to this day. And I mentioned how much it had got me back into their back catalogue. And one, realising how strong it was after that immortal first album. And two, how great that 1969 live album was and how, what a brilliant live band they were. Um, so it was a brilliant documentary for people like me that already know all of that story. Uh, and the other thing, it, it didn't have Lou Reed in it hardly at all. Uh, obviously, he died. Uh, but John Cale took over the narrative for most of the film and it did whittle through the last couple of albums very quickly so reservations but a brilliant documentary very arty and from that fourth album loaded uh which is the only one to contain weak tracks it's not as good as critics make out these days this track however is And um, Todd Haynes' documentary was my 13th best film of the year. Yov Julian, on the brand note, counting down a very, very lacklustre 2021 20, in albums, tracks and film. It's so hot in the studio today. We're in, yeah. uh, we're in a heat wave at the moment in Sydney. At number 12, I mentioned Matt Damon has two really good performances this year. So does... Benedict Cumberbatch. I had to look down to say his name properly, as I'm so used to saying one of the hundred variants of his name. Um, he's like the needle drop. Um, the Power of the Dog is a film that is winning most films of the year list, but I haven't seen it. So he is front runner for an Oscar. I think he is a terribly underrated and underappreciated actor still. Um, I don't know if that's the kind of films he's been in, but um, his performance in my 12th best film of the year, The Courier, which came out earlier in the year, directed by Dominic Cook, who's done some very strange films. Oh, he's a, he's a theatre lovey, so he's mainly done theatre productions. Um, it tells the true story of um, Greville Wynne, who was a salesman, alcoholic, nice guy, hung around the fringes of the upper classes and travelled throughout Eastern Europe doing his sales stuff. And the uh, MI6 come to him and say, um, look, we've got this unbelievably high-ranking Russian that wants to trade information with us. This is at the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is when nuclear war was a real problem, a real problem, a, a possibility. So they don't want to use anyone that's in MI6. They don't want to use any of their assets in Russia because they don't want anyone involved at all. They want this clean skin that has no connection with anyone to meet their guy in Russia. And he does. And this is one of the great, true, brave hero stories. The guy's a total hero. Um, and he met and put himself in more and more danger to meet this um, extremely high-ranking Russian individual that could have had a the information that he provided to uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character could have had a very strong impact on the Cuban Missile Crisis not developing into a nuclear war. That Russian guy wasn't a traitor. He believed that the people that were in, in control of Russia were capable of launching a nuclear war because they were bonkers. So he tried his hardest to keep the countries from fighting and, and was ultimately successful. 
Um, it is it is one of those true stories that is quite amazing, and uh, it doesn't end well for Benedict Cumberbatch, and he goes through a lot of very frightening years. Um, uh, it doesn't end up well for him. And then when he came back, no one could really know about what he'd done either. So he had to sort of... What was it? Like the guy that... Um, Alan Turing, like the, no one knew that he was this hero that had done all this stuff after the war because it had to remain you know, quiet. Beautifully shot um, retro piece. Lots of lovely rainy London streets, not for the first time in this. And um, interesting scenarios in Russia. And um, the the thing that makes the movie is Cumberbatch's performance. He's so human. He's um, it, I, I really like hero stories where the character's scared. And you can tell he is scared and he struggles. He's got a lovely family. He drinks far too much. But other than that, he's a really good bloke. And he doesn't want to be doing any of this. He just kind of feels like he has to. Um, he's not like this gung-ho guy that's going into battle. He's like really scared. He's got that Frodo thing going on where he does understand the implications and what might happen to him. And it does happen to him. So it's a fascinating historical film. Um, I'm sure they've bent the rules here and there. Um, who else is in it as well? Yeah, I don't know the other people in that film at all. No. But anyway, it is, um, it's a really well put together, classy Cold War film with the underlying uh, weight that being a true story brings to it and a wonderful central performance. So that's my 12th. And from that is a beautiful scene where he goes to the ballet in Russia for the first time and is weeping at Swan Lake from Tchaikovsky. Uh, it's a lovely scene in that film, my 12th best of the year, The Courier, where Benedict Cumberbatch is just overcome by that um, unbelievably powerful music from Tchaikovsky, Swan Lake. And he's just sobbing in the theatre. You're Julian counting down my top 15 best and seven worst films of the year. At number 11 is the second entry for a very underrated film by Matt Damon, which is The Last Duel. Now, this could be the year of Ridley Scott, and he's getting no credit for anything. I, like, I love Ridley Scott's um, appreciation of cinema. I think a lot of his career, his films have been badly written and the screenplays haven't been good, even the ones that are iconic. I think sometimes, I think he rarely gets it as right as um, Gladiator. Um, I think the, you know, Blade Runner is a good example, a, a, pro, a, you know, a much more iconic film, maybe a much better film than Gladiator, but the actual screenplay itself is, it's fairly clunky. Um, and he's had more hits, uh, misses and hits, with stuff like Kingdom of Heaven and so on, and some pretty ropey stuff like G.I. Jane. But I was this was the most surprised I was by a film this year. Um, this year he's done The House of Gucci. Trailers never lie. This has got a panning from critics. I think from the trailers it looks awesome. Uh, and Lady Gaga looks incredible in the trailers. Um, so they rarely ever lie. They get the tone of the film perfect. And... Um, that might end up being a cult masterpiece, but the last duel he got trashed, and it was a box office bomb because it was a hundred million dollar film that was closer to the Green Knight 
an art house British film than it was to Gladiator. And I went in expecting to see Ridley Scott's other historical drama, The Kingdom of Heaven, which is a dire film, a dour, just a really poor film. I thought it was going to be like that. And instead, I got this fascinating three-act film about a very true event that happened in France in the 1300s where one nobleman's wife was raped by another nobleman that used to be his friend. And she actually accused him in the courts and it went all the way up to the King of France, and the King of France allowed a duel to decide who was guilty. It wasn't the last ever duel uh, to decide guilt, but it was the last of its kind in the 1300s. And the whole event is so documented by the lawyers involved, the historians at the time, and there were tens of thousands of people that flocked to the Parisian streets to watch this titanic duel. The thing that surprised me after not reading up anything about it was the three-act Rashomon style. So you get uh, Matt Damon's version of events, and then you get um, a brilliant Adam Driver, who's probably the standout of the film, as um, Jacques Legree, who's the accused rapist, but also a much more positively portrayed character than Matt Damon's abrasive blowhard. Um, and then you get um, Jodie Cormer as the victim telling her story. So they each tell it from their own perspective and it's, it's done differently each time until it arrives at Jodie Cormer's true evaluation of what happened. Um, although you may, you may um, say that they're portrayed equally. Um, I, I found that really interesting, the way that, say, something like Matt Damon at, at the start portrays Adam Driver as someone that he'd rescued that became this turncoat that undermined him behind the scenes. And Adam Driver's version of events, he was always trying to look out for Matt Damon, but because he was such a blowhard, the court of France fell out of love with him and, and hated him, and he was always defending Matt Damon in, in the court, but he never saw that, and so on. There's all these little changes in people's positioning. And um, Jodie Cormer as well, who who is portrayed in three different versions of herself. So the acting here is pretty difficult for the characters as they... They have to subtly change. Um, and even Ben Affleck as well, he, he's the fourth biggest character in it, and he turns up in a role that I thought would be a bit cringe at first, but I actually really liked him as he progressed throughout the film. So the casting might have been weird, um, being these, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in this historical drama. Adam Driver can do it, Jodie Cormer can do it, but they're, they're very much Americans. Um, but I thought the acting was really good. I thought the um, screenplay worked really well. Um, and and it all builds to this jewel that is very well documented. Every blow in it is documented, and it's terrifying. The lead up to it is terrifying. The fact that they're going to burn Jodie Cormer at the stake if Matt Damon dies, uh, because it will prove that she's a liar. Um, and they they do it blow by blow verbatim. So most of this film you can read historically is is true, and it's one of the most amazing true stories that you just can't believe could possibly have happened and the duel itself i thought was a pretty it was really scary so it looked it looked great it was very very gray and dour but it fitted the times which were very bleak and um i thought it was the most complex and ambitious written film that ridley scott has done so i think he's had a great year for films uh, and that's at uh, number 11 into my top 10 with The Card Counter, um, a film that was ultimately a letdown for me because I thought it might have been one of the best films of the year. Well, it is a bit, but I thought 
Um, given the director Paul Schrader wrote films like Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, and his last directorial film was um, my film of the year, uh, which was, I always say Final Redemption, but it isn't. First Reformed, First Reformed, uh, where Ethan Hawke didn't even get nominated for an Oscar, was my number one film of that year. So um, I did expect more from this. It stars a brilliant Oscar-worthy Oscar Isaac as this very, very bleak person. He still manages to be a human being. Um, and he was in Iraq doing the torture in Abu Ghraib. And this film, it throws up this interesting paradigm that all of the torture that the Americans did to the Iraqis in Abu Ghraib and places like that actually came from the Americans doing it to themselves, to their own soldiers, um, to try and make them too strong to be interrogated in the 1980s if they ever got caught. And they flipped it onto their, uh, their prisoners for the first time. They'd done this um, due to very, very dodgy people at the top. And it's broken him and left him this guy that travels America going from one motel to another, wrapping everything in sheets. And um, he's a card genius and he, he, he plays low stakes cards so he never gets any attention. And he forms a bond with the child of uh, his uh, comrade in arms who'd killed himself. And the child, who's about tw in his 20s, I guess, um, has this plan to basically murder the the guy that was the private contractor at Abu Ghraib. So Oscar Isaacs just has spent like eight years in, in the stockade for his being in the photos of Abu Ghraib, holding the, you know, holding um, uh, Iraqi prisoners on dog leashes and so on. But the guy that orchestrated it all from the private firm couldn't even be prosecuted because he wasn't part of the military. So the, the kid sets out wanting to kill him along the way he has a one um, oscar isaac has a wonderfully uh human relationship with tiffany haddish that reminded me of the movie jackie brown um and i love the way that their platonic relationship grew into something more and it's got so much going for it some of it's really arty but it is quite repetitive i don't think it nails the themes as much as it should with a writer of paul schrader's uh, abilities and some of it some of it just didn't add up it was almost like it wasn't fully finished like even small things like the way that he would wrap everything in his in his motels in sheets and and you know spend hours doing so practically didn't work i mean what no staff come into your motel rooms you live in motels and uh, there are two main events that happened at the end of the film and they both back to back happen off camera which kind of, it, it kind of sort of just ended. Um, like these two massive things happened. And I don't know if it was a budget thing, but you didn't get to, to see these big events. So it, overall, it was a challenging and deep and sometimes deep movie, but other times a little bit flat and repetitive. And from it, I think I've messed up the music here because I'm not 100% sure, but I think that this was from the soundtrack of The Card Counter. Don't let me be misunderstood from Miss Nina Simone. A track that beguiled the animals from the UK to uh, record a much bigger hit cover version. You're with Julian counting down my films of the year and we're into the top 10 now and um that last track was from the card counter at 10 which i said i really liked but had it 
Had it converted every goal, it would have been definitely in, you know, in the running for film of the year. Same with the Green Knight at number nine. Uh, David Lowry is someone that I have been such a latecomer to, an American filmmaker, and I've managed to bypass his films, which include Ghost Story, Ain't Them Body Saints I might have seen. Uh, and I actually saw The Old Man and the Gun, a Robert, wonderful performance by Robert Redford a couple of nights ago. Don't know how I've missed these films before now, but a really diverse and interesting guy. He did a version of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which is um, one of the most famous fabled stories outlying the main King Arthur fables. And it tells of um, the Green Knight, a mythological supernatural entity turning up at this um, round table with uh, King Arthur and his nephew, Sir Gawain, who's this sort of, um, in this film, a playboy who wants to be a knight. Uh, and I think in the main story, just somebody that hasn't quite got that level of courage and capabilities, but who learns them on the way of this quest. And the Green Knight says, you know, uh, whatever, you can, you can hit me with your sword and whatever you do to me, I get to do to you in one year's time really big plot hole in this main story um why would you decapitate the guy obviously he thinks he's going to kill the guy but um being a supernatural entity he has decapitated someone who just simply puts his head back on and in a year's time on christmas day or on christmas eve the green knight gets to come back and and oh, he has to go to the green knight's castle and suffer the same fate so the rest of the movie is uh, a brilliant performance by um, Dev Patel, who I've not raved about. He's someone that came on the scene massively with Slumdog Millionaire and then seemed to really be affected by being in The Last Airbender and sort of faded from view. Um, but he's sort of really relaunched himself with an excellent performance here because he starts off as this playboy who's in a... a a relationship with um, um, a prostitute in a brothel played by Alicia Vikander. And um, he's, you know, he, he he's not a bad guy, but he just drinks and parties and has never done anything. And he ends up, you know, being a bit silly by taking on the Green Knight to try and prove himself. So the rest of the film is basically the Sir Gawain travelling a year later from um, Camelot or wherever it's supposed to be to across these dark mysterious lands hoping to um doesn't know what's at the other end but he believes he's gonna have his head cut off to meet this confrontation with the green knight and it's a travel film where we go through the wilderness and he has encounters with people on the way including some mind-boggling giants um and it it it, very, it it changes some of the story of sir gawain and people have complained about this I thought it did, it, cha it changes two things. It changed the ending, but I thought that the way they handled the ending didn't change anything about the ending. I thought that worked okay. There is another bit where a dual role from Alicia Vikander, such a beautiful woman. She's brilliant in this film because she plays the um, tomboy prostitute, but then she plays um, the lady, and that's how the characters are named in this. They don't get sort of like their full titles or names. There's like Joel Egerton's Lord, and she's Lady. Um, when um, 
Sigurdwain, the Dev Patel character, stays in their castle right towards the end. He has to go through three days of the husband out hunting. And this unbelievably attractive character played by Alicia Vikander trying to seduce the knight. And it's an important part of the story because he's given this moral conundrum, which is a knight cannot refuse a lady and he cannot not refuse her. So it's a really important part of the film and they kind of convolute it and then they, they neuter it by removing the most important part of it. So I thought that was a, a fail there. But Alicia Vikander through those scenes is so seductive. She'd make a good Lady Macbeth actually. Uh, and I thought she was great in this. And um, Sean Harris turns up as King Arthur. So he's got some really good people. It looks breathtaking. Uh, cinematography by Andrew Droz Palermo is amazing. The music, uh, Daniel Hart, was really evocative. The landscapes in Ireland are amazing. Absolutely incredible. Some of the people he encounters on the way, like the ghosts, are really compellingly surreal and weird. Um, and overall, it's a it's a real artistic triumph. But um, uh, it does it. It is a. It sometimes it's a bit flat. Sometimes it drags a bit. And sometimes they've neutered certain elements of the story. But overall, it is a really good film. So uh, definitely one of the year's best. Anyway, uh, number nine, and at number eight, one of the most interesting films of the year. I said for two years straight, I was going to crucify Zack Snyder's Justice League and give it a zero out of ten. I'm so sick of comic book movies. Even more, I'm so sick of comic book movie fans. The Spider-Man people at the moment are doing my head in, screaming all the time about their stupid film. And the fact that they just went on and on about Zack Snyder, uh, a director I'd hated. And this is like this is happening more and more now. So I, I've got a director coming up who I've trashed. And last year, I... Add in my top 10 films of the year, Guy Ritchie, who I trashed every film he's made virtually. And again, I thought The Gentleman was wonderful. And Zack Snyder, other than The Watchmen, I'd really not liked anything he directed. And um, he was famously taken out of the loop of Justice League. And the idea that he was going to provide a director's cut of Justice League, which was several years and $80 million in the making, filled me with no interest whatsoever. And then I saw it, and I think that it is actually a new paradigm in cinema. A lot of what makes a film good is editing. A lot more than you would think. You would think that they just, you know, if they film good scenes, then that's a good film. But it isn't true. But this isn't a director's cut in the traditional sense of using extra footage. The entire tone is different. The entire colour palette is different. The... I, I think with its very brave square resolution, it's not widescreen, it's in a box. I thought that made it one of the best looking superhero films I've ever seen. It's got a really matte palette uh, and it looks incredible. The, uh, the actors have actually acted a lot more scenes than were filmed in the original. The uh, original Justice League is unrecognisable to this. They removed the main villain in that version and they changed the um, way the movie pans out it has nothing to do with the story that's portrayed here it is one of the most brutal hacking to pieces of a movie i've ever seen now that i know what Zack snyder intended the story to actually be which isn't even included in the original version 
And the other thing is, um, this is clearly not the version that Zack Snyder would have made. This is a four-hour film shot in square resolution with a matte finish. This was this was uh, a labor of love made for basically people that will invest heavily in watching this kind of film. The characters breathe a lot better. A couple of them I didn't like in the um, first one and didn't like in this one, but they're much better. The Flash was still a pretty dull character and the Cyborg was still pretty dull, but they're better characters, better realized, and the story arcs are better in this. Um, Baffleck as, um, as Batman, I never rated, but he's better here. And some surprising things. I've always hated Henry Cavill's Superman. I think he's really dour and lifeless. He's actually in this four-hour film less than he is in Justice League. He's kind of really in the background. Um, I, I thought the denouement was really good. Quite, it was really cool, and the use of the flash in it was excellent. And they introduce um, Darkseid, the, the biggest villain from that film that was just left on the cutting room floor. So I thought that was amazing. I thought it did really, really well. It's a lot of um, beautiful filmmaking technique on display. And that's my eighth best film of the year, Zack Snyder's Justice League. And a few of the tracks in it are really, really interesting. And uh, none more so than this that made my tracks of the year a while back from Skeleton Tree, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and Distant Sky. Let us go now. Nick Cave's been on such an incredible roller coaster, tragically coinciding with the death of his son and um, that album which is mainly made before his son actually died skeleton tree but one of the most emotionally powerful records this century and distant sky i was people were so mean they actually um criticized Zack snyder for having that really moving scene about superman dying and uh, oh it's so obvious and gave him a bit of stick i thought well, give the guy a break at least uh, and uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, um, a new paradigm in filmmaking, was at uh, number eight, redefining what a director's cut is. And number seven, one of the most controversial screenplays and ambitious screenplays of the modern era. The directorial debut from Emerald Fennel, uh, who also wrote the film, which is A Promising Young Woman. And another film that really didn't get a proper release at the public. I said this earlier on. If, if no one's seen it, why are you including it in your films of the year? You wouldn't do that with music. You wouldn't say, I've heard a secret copy of this album, and it's in my albums of the year when it hasn't even been released yet. And loads of these films just don't get released until sort of February time. And this is when um, Promising Young Woman came out. And it is an incredible screenplay, so daring. And I did a piece in January about Kerry Mulligan actually... Um, having a pop at a journalist and really went to town on her. You can find it on the YouTube channel where I accused her of the worst kind of Oscar politicking where she had dredged up this non-story to attack this journalist uh, and had done so about a piece that was 12 months before because the film had taken that long to be released from being in the festival circuit. Uh, and I had a massive pop at her, but when I saw the film, I was blown away, and I was blown away by her performance. She was, um, I said, alongside uh, Frances McDormand as best actress of the year contender. Um, 
it starts with her being in drunk in nightclubs with her knickers round her ankles. And she keeps bringing guys home. And when they get there, you know, they can have their wicked way with her and she can't fight them off. And they just basically try to have sex with her, at which point she reveals that she is completely stone-cold sober and asks them what they're doing. Given that she wasn't capable of consenting or and she was too drunk to even be considered conscious, what were you about to do? Were you actually going to have sex with an unconscious woman who was too drunk to know where she is or what she was doing? Uh, which is a confronting moment for these guys. And this is a film about nice guys, the nice guys. Right at the start, three guys are in a bar looking at her in disgust, saying she's putting herself in so much danger. The next thing they do is try it on with her. And that is the biggest selling point of this film, is its destruction of the nice guy. That's who it's after. <clears throat> so we find out after she's been doing this very dangerous act, where she continually pretends to be incredibly drunk and letting guys get to the point where they're going to basically be committing a version of rape because um, the woman that they think they're about to have sex with is, is either unconscious, being sick, or but she's just pretending. Uh, and that was, it's such a timely movie about consent and about nice guys. And we find out that basically when she was a promising woman, uh, she was a promising doctor at university, and something terrible happened to one of her female friends. I won't go through the ins and outs, but I'm sure you can guess along what lines. And ever since, she's been this broken human being, a very hard person to get to know. Um, and that's the setup for the movie, and it's a great setup. And then we get this added impetus of her finally having a relationship with a nice guy. And boy, doesn't that go south horribly. Uh, and then there's a third act where it gets really, really crazy, which I thought was really successful. It is a very dark film. It is a dark comedy, but it is also a very black, dark film as well in the um, places it goes to uh, about human behavior. And the, just the progression of the screenplay, it ends in a really dark place as well. Um, but it's a wonderful film, and it's nearly always successful when it's aiming for very, very high targets. So that's my seventh best film of the year. And if that was arguably the most controversial film of the year, and, and Kerry Mulligan uh, is magnificent in the role, a, a difficult role. The thing that I said about like Nomadland was that um, that's a very subtle performance. Kerry Mulligan has to do a lot in that film a lot more um and if that's one of the most controversial films of the year probably the most controversial film of the year is my number six and i'm branching out to documentaries and other things this time around <coughs> dave chappelle and netflix versus the world uh, the closer from dave chappelle and i did a long 16 minute piece uh, which is again online uh, defending this film on why I, I think it's one of the most, if the most important stand-up of the modern age. The um, tagline is that it is, uh, 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 you know, we, we're in an era of perpetually offended people online forming angry mobs and, and burning down, that's, you know, celebrities. <coughs> the targets of this film were not the trans community. The targets of this film were cancel culture and soundbite culture. The idea that someone can, like he made this really 
political thing where he would continually say offensive sentences throughout this comedy set and they didn't relate to the whole of what he was saying just for soundbite culture just so when you see people drag out one sentence that he said like he said he was a like jk rowling he's a turf or something like that it didn't have anything to do with what he was saying it was like he was specifically going for these people that lift problematic sentences out and use you know semantics to bash people he stared down cancel culture more than anyone has ever done he unflinchingly looked at these people and he told them to get stuffed and he he operated a scorched earth policy in taking them down and he won he didn't lose they keep hammering at him and hammering at him and looking around as though everyone on earth is going to support them because so far they've got away with killing so many careers every time they're upset about someone that's done something problematic and he turned around and he told everyone that thought that to get stuffed netflix well done you stood by him uh, which is something that most corporations what happens over and over and over again is these perpetually offended minorities attack a corporation and they get rid of the staff they can't handle the bad press a good example is these terrible groups in australia that protested two very prominent plays going to the theater with gay actors playing trans leads now this small group of people lobbied to get these plays cancelled they got the plays cancelled in an era of covid when plays are virtually not put on compared to what normally happens these were two productions with a lot of talent involved that were already cast already rehearsed and going to stage telling trans stories there the trans activists here who don't speak for all in the trans community at all got nothing they cancelled two plays about trans people because they weren't happy that the actor wasn't trans so in this world where a very sh small group of people can be very very loud and corporations run scared the fact that netflix and dave chappelle stood up so strong here i was so proud of dave chappelle for this set it's nowhere near his funniest but it is actually his most well thought out most political scree uh, and he makes so many good points throughout that are long form and evade soundbite culture um <clears throat> he makes this really good uh, point about the i think the rapper the baby uh which starts off by saying um the baby was cancelled because he said some anti-gay things and he and he and he makes this thing about how the baby shot and killed a man in walmart and got off scot-free because um he managed to convince the court that the guy had pulled a gun on him and he shot and killed this guy and he made the point that being rude to gay people can get you cancelled but shooting and killing a man in walmart doesn't damage your career but he then later on and this is how clever this is the best embodiment of how clever dave chappelle is in the closer he flipped that scenario about how trans women are banned from bathrooms in that state in walmart but you can shoot and kill a man on the shop floor so he he used both sides of that brilliantly uh it was a it was his most emotive set as well and um it was his most difficult it was unflinching it was fearless and it stared down this perpetually affected online mob i hate blowhards i hate right-wing blowhards that go on about cancel culture and go on about political correctness i am a lefty tree-hugging socialist feminist so on 
And I really cannot stand the way that people are treated nowadays um, because of these very small groups that use that are activism has gone so wrong by focusing so heavily on semantics. I did another piece about whether your pronouns are important as well. This is not the vanguard of activism, yet it is. We, you know what what your pronoun is. Whether somebody said a mean tweet 10 years ago, that is now the vanguard of social activism. And it shouldn't be in a world where actual death and torture are occurring to people that haven't got human rights yet. So well done, Dave Chappelle, and well done to Netflix for the, the closer. Uh, an incredible run of five stand-ups, uh, mainly consistently around the eight, eight and a half out of ten mark. And this one, uh, one for the ages, because it actually turned a blowtorch on something that is really ruining the world at the moment. Uh, what should we go? I think I'll have a break now, because I do talk a lot. <laughs> and I'm going to play this track, which is I'll do, <coughs> as we're up to number six, and there's the top five films left to go. I look like I'm timing this okay. I'm going to play this track, which is from one of my five worst films of the year. And after this, we will do my five worst films of 2021 digital underground the humpty dance i'm not 100 percent sure it was the humpty dance in this film it might have been a different digital underground track but who cares possible swearing and lascivious behavior around the start of the 90s the humpty dance which i think was in the one of my seven worst films of the year um so I do my roundups every year and I do my, well, this year, my top 15 films have a very lacklustre year, but even the worst films are really tepid. It was like the narrow bandwidth this year. Was, last year I had so many wonderful, terrible films. Nothing comes close to the appallingness of We Summon the Darkness or Hillbilly Elegy or The Five Bloods. So when I do my worst films of the year, it's not, just that the film was terrible it has to it usually has other components which is it's wildly overrated it's very disappointing um it it, it can exist in multiple ways it can be just a really bad film but it can also be an average film that is just getting blown out of all proportion so number seven worst films of the year uh, the forever purge um i actually this long-running franchise about with its socio-political screed about a night every year where anyone can commit any crime they want, so people lock themselves in their houses and other people go around butchering them, had some really strong political connotations about you know modern America and these right-wing people coming in power. And um, the last film was really good. <coughs> I can't remember exactly what purge it was, but it was a really good film. And this time around, they do the genius thing, which is to relocate from I think New York to um, to the border of Texas and to involve Mexicans, illegal immigrants and um, good old boys, Trump supporters, so on. Which is a great idea, but they just don't make any use of it. It is such a tepid film. It becomes this really non-eventful road trip and they leave everything hanging up in the air without ever really engaging with some pretty heady themes. So it was just a big letdown. Uh, number six... Uh, one thing that critics have really, really grinding my gears about is who makes the film. Someone's story is the most important element of their art. 
And um, Candyman got great reviews, a reboot of the 1991 horror. And um, who was the guy that wrote it? The guy that wrote Get Out, Jordan Peele, wrote it. Uh, so, you know, this and the fact that it was set in this uh, famous housing projects that had been gentrified. So there were housing projects in the original film and now they've been gentrified and the black middle class was in these films. Very heady themes, great setup, great idea. And it's a horror where, you know, stay Candyman three times in front of the mirror. <coughs> the Candyman appears and murders you. So everything was set up really well, but um, it, was, it wasn't that it was a bad film. It was that it was a dire film. It went nowhere. Um, like, virtually nothing happens, to be honest, throughout, throughout the film. I really don't like the... Um, I mentioned at the time I reviewed it, the cosmification of the black characters in films where they continually make them these really unattainably and no no one likes art people they, like one guy is an, a, a, an artist and the other and his missus is a um art gallery person like no one like they, these aren't relatable people there's this notion that they have to be super successful but why do they always have to be in this art universe that no one can relate to so I really didn't like the characters either. I thought the two, um, the couple that were in this gentrified palace were really dull. And I just didn't care for their world. I reviewed a Janelle Monet film last year and I was one of the only people who gave it a good review about um, this sort of civil war camp thing. And they made her, like her acting was great when she was in that side of it. But in a real world, they made her out to be this super successful motivational speaker on feminist issues and they you actually can hear her speaking and it's terrible the speeches were awful and it's like why can't you just make these people normal why do they have to be so successful um and there were really dull people in this film they really didn't bring anything to the table the um horror elements um though atmospheric when done were done too few and far between there was nowhere near enough of a story here to hang this movie on. And the final third was just ridiculous. Uh, so that was my sixth worst. Number five, uh, Wes Anderson has been a whipping boy on this show. I cannot stand his films. I stopped watching them after the terrible Moonrise Kingdom. Again, got incredibly good reviews for no reason. I feel like the reviews of the French Dispatch have shown that uh, the luster has well and truly worn off. It is the most Wes Anderson film possible. It pretends to be about journalists writing for some highfalutin art house magazine that comes with free with newspapers called The French Dispatch, but really it's about Wes Anderson films. It is him at his trademark empty kookiness, where he substitutes art and substance with kooky comedy. And there is no coherence between the different elements in the film at all. None of it adds up. It's only 100 minutes long, and we were breathing a sigh of relief when we realised that the film had ended. Uh, I did give it a partial pass for the Benici del Toro or Javier Bardem sequence in black and white, which was good. And I did quite like the uh, black actor at the end who is not Trevor Howard. I don't know. I can't remember his name is now. Uh, I kind of liked his performance at the end, but it's a film that just ladles on famous faces every 10 minutes and it's just overwhelming and it's dull and it's got no substance at all and there's no thread meaning anything. 
Uh, so that's at number five. At number four, I'm a huge fan of Liam Neeson and particularly of his um, Jason Statham-like rebirth about 10, 15 years ago we've taken. Because there are so many different versions of that Liam Neeson from Taken in the in the films that have uh, come up. But what really I really hated about the Ice Road is he went through this patch a couple of years ago for a, for a few years up until a couple of years ago where he was doing films like Run All Night, Cold Pursuit, really great stuff that was very different to Taken and showing new sides to him. And much better films. And this year he released three really lacklustre films. The Marksman, I can't even remember what the other one was, in a row in like a month. Uh, the worst of the bunch was The Ice Road. A good idea for a Wages of Fear type truck journey. But it really, it, it screened Zed movie. It screened of very low budget and um, very much will this do. And it was cringe-inducingly bad at number four. At number three, who did Habit? Now, Habit was a controversial film because of the poster making out that Paris Jackson, uh, Jackson's beautiful daughter, um, was a lesbian Jesus, but it didn't really even happen in the film. It was just like salacious for the point of the poster. And um, it was um, one of the lowest reviewed films of the year, talking 6% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Bella Thorne, who's made a, a career out of um, OnlyFans now, an ex-Disney actress. Um, everything about it was terrible. I love car crash films. I gave Sia's Music a good review for being one of the best worst movies I've seen in modern history. And for the other thing of never being boring and the characters being nice. I recommend watching it because you won't be bored. Your mouth hits the floor. Every two seconds you watch Music by Sia which tops many bad film lists this year. Um, but it's so entertaining, it's so gaudy, it's so completely unbelievable what you're watching on screen. And the characters are all really nice and actually well acted. So I gave that a reasonably good review, but Habit is the opposite. It is torturously dull. The acting is awful. Uh, Bella Thorne is apparently the professional actress on display here. Her performance is rubbish. Others are worse. Gavin Rossdale from the band Bush and um, Jamie Hintz from the, uh, the Kills give absolutely execrable performances and so does everyone else. The film is cringe-inducingly bad. It's made with a budget that it, you wouldn't... If you, if, this is basically a lot of trendy influencer types sitting around a nightclub in... New in um, LA saying we should make a movie and actually not being stopped by someone. It is unbelievably bad. You don't have to go there. Number three, Habit. And I used music by Sia just then as an example of a terrible film or one that's got terrible reviews that I actually enjoyed. Another one that I actually enjoyed, I was going to get to the stu studio a bit earlier and review three films uh, which I've seen recently but I haven't reviewed yet. And one of them is in this list. Um, but Red Notice just came out to dire reviews starring Ryan Reynolds in The Rock. And I just... Oh, Gal Gadot is just so amazing. Um, I, I expected that to be this very... Um, Michael Bay, bombastic, cynical film. But it, instead I got something closer to Jungle Cruise. I thought it was actually kind of charming and amiable... 
And I like Red Notice, but what I didn't like was the other Ryan Reynolds film I saw. At number two is uh, Free Guy. I found this obnoxious. I found it, um, it's just like this most fragmented film, empty filmmaking. Um, the, uh, the notion of a non-playable character in a computer game attaining consciousness is, is a worthy one and, um, and deserving of you know, a story. It's an interesting concept that has parallels into... Can you believe a new Matrix movie is coming out in a couple of weeks? What the hell is going on? I mean, it has parallels. You know, you can make uh, metaphorical allusions to the human condition, which they don't. Um, right, there's nothing wrong with Ryan Reynolds in this film, but it is just—it's a story that it—it it just becomes more and more like staring at a video game. Um, I didn't think any of the characters went anywhere. Um, I didn't really go for the story arc. Um, everyone was underutilized. I thought the notion of you know the real world people in it and the, the sort of love affair unrequited love between the guy and the girl was torture and i did turn it off before it actually yeah, resolved their love affair because i was just cringing so much so it's a very bombastic and boring film with some really obvious choices such as um I played that uh, Digital Underground track because they play a Digital Underground track in this film, but every other track is hell on earth to listen to. It's got really bad soundtrack. Looks pretty good, but um, other than that, it, it, I found it torture. My number one film of the year, my number one worst film of the year, will, will no doubt be a controversial choice. Uh, it ticks a number of boxes, and it is Dennis Villeneuve's June. Now, there are people that are including this in their best films of the year, and those people don't have any taste. The reason June is my number one worst film of the year is Expectation. Denis Villeneuve is one of the greatest directors in modern history. I've loved his films. I've raved about Sicario, Enemy, and he managed to reboot a, an untouchable night icon of science fiction in Blade Runner and do a magnificent job. So surely he could do the same with June. Nothing, nothing special about Blade Runner is in June. It's um, an incredibly flat, boring film. The it it throws up interesting characters like Oscar Isaac and then just gets rid of them. Uh, the woman in it is, is actually really good. I can't remember what her name is off the top of my head and I can't bother to look. Timothy Chamelay, I thought, was a, a not a good choice for this role, but there's nothing wrong with his performance here. It's just that all of the characters end up being flattened by this non-story arc. For a start, it gives you two really flat, slow acts, so you think that you're heading for this $100 million spectacle denouement. Yet the third act peters out to absolutely nothing happening. And it's very long, and they split it into two films because you can't film this narrative in one film, it's too big. Yet more than 60% of this film is downtime. They could have easily fitted the whole film into one film. And it just ends on this really damp, nothingy moment. Um, I thought that, I think it's Hans Zimmer's score. Hans Zimmer is the bellwether for good films for me. When his score's excellent, the film is excellent, see Blade Runner 2049. Here he's at his most aggravating, where every space is filled with noise, and it's so grating. 
Some of the cinematography is very good. Some of the cinematography is very rote. The other thing that I was amazed by is the, um, the there's just, I mean, the action when it happens is so far, few and far between, but when it's shot done, it's not done well. It just isn't shot well. We see an awful lot of spaceships landing slowly on planets as cinematography. But when he's got these action sequences with lots of people on screen, they're just not really done well at all. So it was flat, it was boring, it had no story that it didn't need to spread itself over two films. The Zendaya character is just walking over sand dunes looking furtively over her shoulder and doesn't really speak in the film. She's not even really in it, yet she's listed as one of the main characters in all the posters. And over time, I just grew really bored of Timothy Chalamet's character. And as I said, it's not Frank Herbert's fault because his book is the most best-selling science fiction book of all time and everyone has ripped it off. So the notion of this, you know, saviour coming to rescue a hard-done-by peoples from an intergalactic fascist force has been done so often since that 1960s novel came out that everything is really old. <clears throat> everything about the story progression we've seen a million times. So that's not the fault of the book, but they didn't bring anything to the table. The most amazing thing you can say about my number one worst film of the year, which lets me down because he's one of my favourite directors, Denis Villeneuve's one of my favourite directors in the year, and I've raved about almost everything he's done on every level that's missing here. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say now. I think the most amazing thing you can say is that David Lynch's famously bad version from the 1980s is better than the Denis Villeneuve version of June. And this is Emperor's New Clothes time because people that are sitting on that screen and just hearing lots of noise and some occasional pretty pictures and a very mundane tone are calling this art and it is garbage. It is terrible. I gave it three and a half out of ten. So my worst film of the year is June. The last five, my five best films of a very lackluster year at number five is Godzilla vs. Kong. Cruelly missed out of everyone's end of year list. This was a Titanic success. Directed by Adam Wingard. Now, I've been on board with the, um, the new franchise building here. I thought the first Kong movie was half brilliant and it was just too slow and the lead guy that replaced Brian Cant why did you not keep Brian Cranston in that film um that he had so much potential the guy that took over it is just so dull um but it was really arty some of the uh, some of the monster stuff in it was very very artistically shot uh, and it was quite moody it was just too long and it was a bit damp but I did kind of like it um, I, I gave Kong Skull Island 0 out of 10, uh, which wasn't a good look. So I was really disappointed that Kong was infecting the Godzilla branch of the tree. I hated everything about that film. Um, and then Godzilla King of the Monsters was a masterpiece. That was fantastic. Uh, a great version of the actual Japanese-style originals. Um, which looked mind-blowing. Once again, the characters on the ground were rubbish, but there was so much monster action, I just didn't even pay attention. But probably the best of the bunch is uh, Kong Skull, uh, Kong Skull Island, Godzilla vs. Kong, which is a Batman vs. Superman we actually want. Now, they 
did everything right here. It was a much better screenplay, and I thought Rebecca Hall and uh, particularly Alexander Skarsgård were much stronger human leads than they had in the previous films. Millie Bobby Brown's teenager side plot has been widely uh, criticised as not having anything to do with the film and unnecessary. Broadly speaking, that's true. But this is all about the character of Kong, who is uh, a spectacular evocation, much better than the one from Skull Island. Andy Serkis worthy, uh, an incredible, uh, it's a really good story as well. Um, and we also get, I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it, I won't spoil what's coming. But um, uh, Godzilla is again magnificent. The um, the battles are just mind-blowing and uh, and the story is pretty mind-blowing as well. It really gets into this incredible inner, inner Earth universe. Um, which I found absolutely wonderful and really well realised. Um, and it's got a bit of human heart to it as well. So I thought that was a fantastic film. I'm starting to watch the clock now because I have got a track from just about every film to come. So that's my fifth best film of the year, the best of its kind, the best monster movie of its kind uh, in the modern era, Godzilla vs. Kong at five. At number four, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Um, this was a very, it was a hard film to watch, but also a fabulous film. He's one of my most favourite people ever. Uh, I am a ridiculous Anthony Bourdain fan, and it was a, it was hard, um, him committing suicide. And this film did things that I didn't think that were possible. For a start, it's a great chronological story in how he became Bourdain. It follows him from that very first foray into writing in a newspaper to his first TV shows and how he branched away from the traditional way of doing television into him inhabiting the monologues on his show himself rather than at the start actually just reading out what they were giving him. After, and this was a crucial part, they realised that he'd never travelled. He'd never travelled until he started making TV. He went to the world as he imagined it. And he was open to these experiences and he quickly became aware that there was a lot more going on here and he wanted to relay that and he started taking over writing the narration. And then there were the and then he became this you know this incredible character uh, that transcended the genre of food travel television. Um, and it really made me appreciate how much of like I'd watched him since the start, and I because it happened incrementally, I didn't really focus on how much he changed over those years into being this incredible, soulful, poetic, and lyrical guy um, who had a lot of social political angles to to the stories that he was painting about people. So I found that fascinating. I also found the um, portrayal of the last few years when I thought everything was fine to be utterly heartbreaking. Um, the wheels really came off for him and um, I didn't realise that was going on. Um, he started alienating everyone around him and he went into this incredibly dark place after his marriage broke down. And the troubling part is that it, 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 it moved from his marriage to the, a wonderful Octavia, uh, who's portrayed very well in the film, to the idea that maybe he met this femme fatale in... Um, Asia Argento, who had destroyed his life, which is obviously rubbish. Uh, and a lot of people in the film do make the point that, you know, he was on this destructive path his whole life, 
years before the TV cameras were there, he was a crack addict and a heroin addict and destroying himself and suffering from uh, severe bouts of depression. And um, he talked about it a lot, but everyone thought he was choking and he obviously wasn't. But it was, I didn't realise how hard it would be those last couple of seasons um, and how much he alienated everyone in his life by that stage. Um, so things were very, very black towards the end, and there seems to have been an inevitability about it. One point that I thought was quite powerful was when they said the eight-year marriage he had to Octavia, did it go off the rails? And the person turned around and said, no, his life went off the rails when he married Octavia and had these wonderful years of happiness at home. They got back on track once the marriage ended and he was inevitably hurtling towards this end, which is pretty hard. It's tough. The end's really tough, but I think this it does wonderful fan service. It really does. So from my fourth best film of the year, Anthony Wardane and uh, the Roadrunner movie. This is a, no Two, three, four, five, six. a nice segue to the Velvet Underground doco that nearly opened things as Jonathan Richmond appears in both. And as Jonathan Richmond, who's one of the main narrators of the Todd, Sol uh, Todd Haynes documentary, Developed Underground, that was um, earlier on in this list, and uh, provided the title track to Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, my fourth best of the year, and uh, the best Velvet Underground song they never wrote, a classic Roadrunner from Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. And number three, another of those films that was in everyone's best of the films last year, but didn't even get an international release wide until well into this year, uh, which is when I saw it. Now, 10 years ago, one of my favourite films of the year uh, was from the Danish director. I think he's Danish. I've just got to check. Yep, Danish director Thomas Vinterberg and Mads Mikkelsen, The Hunt, about a school teacher in a small town accused of being a pedophile. Amazing film, and uh, for me, it was probably the first time I realised that Mads Mikkelsen's one of the great actors of the modern era. Uh, either that <coughs> or Casino Royale, where he turned in a stunning Bond villain. Well, they've reunited, and God, am I glad they did. And the concept of Another Round, my third best film of 2021, is uh, a great one. Four men that have fallen by the wayside of life, including a really hard half hour with uh, Mads Mikkelsen, a man that is crippled by depression and anxiety, to the extent his own students, he's, they're all teachers, his own students hold an intervention, getting the other teachers to say that our teacher's so bad, can you do something about him, please? It's horrible. And his, <coughs> his wife won't have, you know, he, he, he is estranged from everything in his life. He has just been worn down by life. He's got nothing left. So they, they embark on this plan, which is that there is a philosopher that believes the human condition should be 0.05 alcohol blood limit. Uh, not zero, which is about the drink drive limit. So they test it by remaining at 0.05 alcohol limit during the day uh, at school and then not drinking at night. And they find their whole lives change. Suddenly they become this really charismatic, interesting people that the world responds to, uh, which is a fascinating paradigm on its own. Um, but the rest of the movie pans out him and his three friends finding that they've got this new lease of life by gradually upping the alcohol limit. 
<coughs> and um, it reaches this like gyre of spinning out and out and further out of control. And and by the end, they're just absolutely annihilated trying to live their normal lives. One thing I really liked about this, it was all about the human condition and human spirit. It was nothing about these people who are embarking on this foolhardy quest and they're going to get punished at the end. One character has a comeuppance that would have probably happened anyway. But everything is really better for the rest of them. They don't get comeuppances. It's not a film about comeuppances. And um, just in, and you think that it's coming because that's what American films do. If people behave badly, then they get punished in the film, even if they're the heroes that you worship. I'm looking over my shoulder at the clock <laughs> a lot. Um, <clears throat> and I really love the fact that it, it was so powerfully into the human spirit. Mads Mikkelsen is magnificent as, uh, and the, uh, the lead in this film. And his really um, convincing emotional journey with his wife and um, his students and his rebirth into the world is one of the best feel-good stories <clears throat> I've seen in recent years uh, with a triumphant climax, a magnificent end. And Mads is just a god. And I'm so happy he got back together with Vinterberg. From that, a brief bit of Sissy Strut from the meters. Uh, yeah. Number two, <coughs> I had Zack Snyder lower down the list, a director I've hated and uh, gave no chance to ever liking one of his films. Uh, I did the same with Guy Ritchie last year, but I'm always honest. And uh, one person I've really detested in modern I history is Edgar Wright. I think he did the same as Guy Ritchie with Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Make films that weren't probably great films that had great people in them that made you love them. Uh, <coughs> after that, his films have been torture for me. I hate Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. The World's End is the worst Simon Pegg project in history. But I really hated Baby Driver because it got great reviews and it was such a bad film. Such guy, sub Guy Ritchie trash. So I gave no hope at all for a film that didn't get anywhere near as good a reviews as Baby Driver last night in Soho, which I watched a couple of weeks ago, being any good. And it blew me away. It's the only film that wasn't in last year's roundups that I gave 9 out of 10 to this year. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, ambitious hybrid of a celebration of swinging 60s London through the lens of a girl from Cornwall that goes there to become a fashionista uh, at the height of Carnaby Street and the nightclub scene and rock and roll taking off in the middle of the 60s. And um, a horror film. And it's a very interesting one. Now, it stars um, two uh, almost twinned characters. Thomas and Mackenzie, who was from the film uh, Leave No Trace, uh, who was wonderful as a child in that. She's the fashionista from Cornwall. And they make her have a Cornish accent, which she does really well. But that's so unfair to try and do that. And Anna Taylor-Joy, who is just wonderful, uh, who was in The Witch, one of my films of the last decade. And that basically, the uh, Thomas C. McKenzie character moves into a bedsit in London and starts having these flashback dreams. She's in the modern era. She's in today's world. But she has these flashbacks where she can see the world through Anna Taylor-Joy, who is a starlet that comes to London to try and make it in the nightclub scene. And this inspires the Thomas C. McKenzie character 
to become this um, beautiful and very um, fashionable woman because she, she starts dressing like her and does her hair like her and becoming a lot more confident and stands out from everyone. That and that in itself, and she she get every time she goes to sleep, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street style, she lives the um, life of Anna Taylor Joy in the nineteen sixties as she's trying to become this nightclub singer and hugely charismatic and beautiful woman. And then everything starts going horribly wrong. She realizes that the world that Anna Taylor Joy is being sucked into is a world of predators, and the idea that she's being sold this lie of being in the nightclub world is a much, much darker prospect than she's being led to believe. So the whole dreaming at night becomes a more nightmare on Elm Street scenario. We throw into the mix murder and um, uh, some really horrific treatment of women. It's an astonishing film on every level. The um, two things that stand out are the cinematography by uh, Chun Hoon Chung, her cinematography who, since the film Old Boy, has um, uh, been behind the camera in some of the most prominent Park Chan-wook films, I think it's Park Chan-wook films, uh, and some of the best cinema of this century. He does an amazing job here, showcasing rainy nights in London and sweeping shots of nightclubs. It's beautiful to look at. It's a high point alone for the cinematography. The soundtrack is everything that Baby Driver wasn't. It is packed with really good, interesting songs, um, particularly where they use songs that are more famous in the modern era, but the original versions that keep cropping up. The soundtrack is wonderful. The two leads are fantastic. The, both the girls give magnificent performance. Um, I thought it was really ambitious. I thought Edgar Wright didn't do anything wrong. It's not getting the reviews it deserves behind the decks as a director. It has so much more soul than that awful baby driver. And um, I thought it was wonderful. So it's my second Best film of the year, and a clip from not the Silla Black version, but the Dion Warwick version of Anyone Who Had a Heart, which plays a pivotal role. Anyone who ever loved could look at me and know that I love you. Anyone who ever dreamed could look at me and know I dream of you. Knowing I love you so Sadly, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to go through 10, The Card Counter, my films of 2021, 9, uh, The Green Knight, 8, Zack Snyder's Justice League, 7, A Promising Young Woman, 6, Dave Chappelle and The Closer, Five, Godzilla vs. Kong. Four, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. And at number three, another round. And at number two, Last Night in Soho, where that was from. Number one, I decided to keep it in because it was not released until February in most markets, even though it was number one film of the year last year. I said that it would win the three Oscars that it did win, the big ones for Best Picture, Best Director and Best Actor or Best Actress. Chloe Zhao ended the year, the year on a very bum note with The Eternals, uh, but she started the year with an incredible film that I reviewed, uh, the reviews online, and since I've been reviewing films and scoring them out of 10, I've never given 10 out of 10 to a new release film in the history of this show. Only the Twin Peaks 3 TV series and some old films. 
And Nomadland was the first film that I gave 10 out of 10 to. It blew me away in every way that you could be blown away by a movie. I loved everything about it. I found it incredibly powerful and moving. Uh, and I go into that in great depth. But um, I haven't got much time to go into it now. But I got about two-thirds of the way through. And I'm so critical of films. I was thinking, you know, oh my God, this has not put a single second foot wrong in this whole movie it can't possibly keep this up and it did all the way through to the final shot so a 10 out of 10 film for me and my number one film of the year nomadland and a really weird track from that one of my favorite smith songs it's not on an album except for a collection i think called hatful of hollow it was never a single but i love this track and uh, that's it my film of the year unsurprisingly the only 10 out of 10 i've ever given for a new release film nomadland adios